you can make predictions about who you are as a person, and you can make predictions about what you would do in any given situation, but you never really know until you're tested. Until that briefcase full of money is in front of you, you don't know. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It's your boy, Good Price, aka Rabbi Can't Lose, aka Noah Kagan. Today, I am very excited to be able to share the journey of Robert Curson. He is one of my favorite authors of all time. His books, Shadow Divers and Rocket Men, are unbelievable, and they're real true life stories that you're not going to be able to put down. I was really excited to reach out for him because I want to learn how the hell does he put together these amazing books and tell such badass stories. I was also shocked to learn that he was a super well-paid lawyer and gave that all up to go follow his passion project of being an author. You're going to learn three major things. Number one, what do you need to do to tell great stories? Number two, how does Robert validate his book ideas just like a startup? And number three, what is research process like to create one of these amazing books? By the way, it takes at least three years per book. I loved this interview, and I'm really excited for you to hear from Robert. Enjoy. Quick plug, I learned about Robert Curson from my good friend Ryan Holiday. Go to ryanholiday.net. I know we couldn't afford the .com, but it's ryanholiday.net and join his reading list. He sends out amazing book recommendations every few months, and I buy almost every single one of them. That's my plug. Go check it out, ryanholiday.net. Sign up for his reading list. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Ian from Australia. He left a review saying, I love the no filter advice, mate. Uh, thank you for the feedback, Ian. I appreciate it. And every single other one of you who listens, it means a lot. If you want to shout out in a future episode, leave an iTunes review. I check out every single one of them. How do you deal with boredom in general? That's something that it's actually one of my mantras or daily things I'm thinking about is sitting with silence. And it's something that I don't think I'm unique in it, but I need stimulation and I love it people and things and all this stuff all the time. And so trying to practice more just sitting with silence and getting into some boredom. Yeah, I think that's a real challenge, especially with smartphones and computers, which provide constant stimulation and, and different stimulation 24 hours a day. The way I deal with it is to either go for a walk or even better, go for a drive in quiet because there's something about moving down the road, whether it's by foot or especially in a car, that puts me into another state of mind. And it's very relaxing. It's where I do my best thinking and often where I outline my books as well and do the real you know, hard work of construction and design in terms of storytelling. I grew up with a father who took me on three-week road trips constantly because he was a traveling salesman. So it might be in my blood from an early age, but that's what I do to embrace the boredom is kind of hit the road. So do you write it down when you're driving or you just get it processed and your brain is going through it? No, I don't write it down, but I have a small digital recorder that I'll talk into so I don't lose my ideas or the order of my ideas. And then do you schedule that? Is that like a like every Monday, Thursday we do drive time? No, it's as it hits me. So depending on where I am in a project, I'll be doing it every day or every other day or really just when it when it hits me that I really need to sort things out and unclutter my mind. And also uh, often uncluttering my mind means getting away from my smartphone or my computer. There's something going on in my life where you're, you know, talking with you, I'm reading this book by Keith Cunningham, Ultimate Business Mastery or something like that. I've talked with a few other people and everyone's like, you need thinking time. And I think we kind of put in our calendars. I don't know if you do, but I'm a, I'm a scheduler. And so I put in my calendar and then it comes up and I'm like, well, I could probably just be working on something else instead. And it is one of those times though, when I have done it, like this morning, I spent 15 minutes just thinking. And I was like, dude, this is great. I got to do this more often. So it definitely seems like I don't, there's a trend to it or just more being intentional about making time for it. I agree with that. And I think it's very important to have thinking time. Tell me what you think about this, but I often find shower time to be excellent thinking time also. It's a place where you typically don't have your smartphone, even though they're now waterproof 
but it's a good place where you have that droning sensation. Same with the wheels of a car or the footsteps on a walk or a bike ride, where there's a sort of white noise in terms of the textures around you. And that puts at least me into a thinking mode. So that is my best thinking time. And I do think it's absolutely not just invaluable, but I think it's necessary for our mental health. I love that. I'm going to put more of that in practice in the upcoming weeks. I think like even this morning, I spent 10, 15 minutes just thinking and the amount of great thoughts that were coming from it. You know, meditations is really popular in the past few years. I think where I've felt frustrated is that it doesn't feel as tangible sometimes and it may not be big ones right away. And it's easy to discard it in retrospect. But I'm probably ignoring the fact that I'm getting a lot out of it, you know, calm throughout my day or insights that I probably didn't even appreciate that came through being quiet or meditating. Yeah, that's a very hard thing to quantify. And I'm sure you are getting things that you're not realizing, at least at the moment. I truly believe in that quiet time, that alone time where you're just with yourself. And I think that the more time you spend on it, the more unexpected things come to you. So I'm all for it every day. I love it. Well, two things you said I, I was curious about is what did your dad sell when you traveled around with him? He was the owner of a motorcycle paints and lubricants manufacturing company. So, you know, by the age of six, I knew more about the viscosity of different oils than most PhDs would. <laughs> but, you know, he was this company's lone traveling salesman. So he was on the road nine or 10 months out of the year. And in order that I didn't grow up feeling fatherless, he and my mom agreed that I should accompany him on these trips. And they were all by car. You know, he had this big Lincoln Continental, mostly because he was fat and it's one of the only cars he could fit in, but also because he needed to, you know, lug his samples around. And so I would go on these trips three weeks, three and a half weeks at a time, missed a ton of school. They'd never allow, you know, DCFS would be at your door instantly these days. I was on these trips by, I guess, age eight. I had been to all 48 of the continental United States several times and always, you know, in these industrial parks where he would go sell his products. And he was this tremendous storyteller. And, you know, you didn't have satellite radio back then and you didn't have podcasts that you could play. So you're on these huge stretches of open road. And what there really was to do was tell stories and to talk. And my dad was amazing storyteller, just the best I've ever come across. I didn't even realize how great at the time, but he had, you know, a single rule for these trips. And that was, if he told stories, you told stories. And so even though I didn't ever take a writing class in my life or keep journals or do any of the other supposed prerequisites required to become a writer, I had this real deep education, you know, literally at the shoulder of a great storyteller for years and years on the open roads of America. Do you remember any of the stories? Oh, they were phenomenal. They were mixtures of fiction and nonfiction, stories about his, his life, stories about two bad boys named Marvin and Arvin that he made up. These went on for years. I heard stories about Marvin and Arvin, and I tell them to my own children to this day. He did tell me one really interesting story. I was telling this to somebody the other day where he had met somebody for lunch, and that person was also in the paint business. And that person told him, Jack, you know, this person we both know in the business embezzled all the money from their family business, stole it all, and ran away with it. Can you believe that this guy would do that? And my dad said back to him, well, you never really know until you're tested. And that shocked me when he said that, because to me, my father was the most heroic and ethical and brave man in all the world. And yet here he was saying, you never really know until you're tested about stealing from your own family. And what he told the guy and told me was that, you know, you can make predictions about who you are as a person, and you can make predictions about what you would do in any given situation but you never really know until you're tested. Until that briefcase full of money is in front of you, you don't know. And I was traumatized by that. <laughs> I thought, I, almost, I remember like fighting back tears, you know, forcing myself not to cry from hearing that. 
but it turned out to be so true in life. And it actually turned out to be so true for the people who I wrote about in my first book, Shadow Divers, which was about these two guys who risked everything in their lives to identify a sunken German U-boat in New Jersey waters. And it turned out that they were willing to risk everything to do this, although they never would have known that if it had been proposed to them on paper. And so that kind of insight came along with a lot of my dad's stories and which made it a real pleasure to listen to him whenever we were on the road. What did you learn about storytelling in terms of, I don't know if it's format or effectiveness? And I'm curious if you, if you learned anything about business or selling as well from all that time with him. Well, the thing I learned about business and selling is to just be professional and keep your word. When I first got into writing and I would deliver my drafts on time, some of the editors, like at magazines and newspapers, would be surprised even that I was always on time. And that seemed only natural to me. But I only later found out that some writers you know, procrastinate or don't deliver on time. But I always saw it as a business and that you had to be professional. Um, the way I watched my dad run his business, because it was such a small business, you didn't have room for messing around or messing up. You, know, you had to do what you said you were going to do, and you had to do it as a gentleman, or you weren't going to survive. It was a very competitive business, very tight margins. And so I always kind of treated my writing career the way he treated his business career. In terms of storytelling, I went much more on instinct than I did on anything else. Again, I never took a class. I never learned formally how to tell a story. The only thing I did was say to myself, how would I like someone to tell me this story if we were driving from Chicago to Milwaukee, let's say, which is about an hour drive for me? That's about my attention span. I'm a kid of the 70s, so I want, you know, I'm a cartoon watcher. I don't have the most expansive attention span. So I want to know, what could you tell me in an hour that would really hook me and make me want to know more, but not tell me too much you know, before we're outside of Illinois? And if I can put that on the page, I think I'm close. So it, it was all by instinct. I never read a book, nothing like that. Have you noticed anything in terms of similarities as you've been writing books for you know other people who want to tell better stories? Or is it just keeping that in mind? Like, all right, I'm in a car, there's no other distractions, and I need to keep them entertained and riveted for, for the hour. Because I will say your books, and I, and I read a pretty good amount, your books are definitely, I'm like, oh, I'm still wanting to keep going. Well, thank you for that. I, yeah, I always just kind of ask myself, is this the kind of story, the way I'm presenting it, that would keep me hooked and make me want to turn the page or make me need to read another chapter? And, you know, there's a lot of storyboarding that goes on when I construct a story and, and diagram it. And sometimes I put way too much up front and I think that's not good because I'm, I'm giving too much away. And I would be sick of this story in 20 minutes and I would know what would happen. It's just basic thinking like that without going into any of the formal kind of training I think that other writers might have had. It's just a real question of how can I make this story a page turner? What would make me keep turning the pages? And beyond that, it just sort of falls into place. Now, it sometimes takes me months to figure out the answer to that. It's not certainly not an overnight thing. It's a lot of months of driving and walking and riding my bike, talking to myself so that neighbors think I'm a lunatic <laughs> and, uh, you know, and a homeless person because sometimes I have a little scraggly beard going. But nonetheless, that's when I get it done. But it could take several months to get it exactly right. I was imagining you outside in a robe and sandals. <laughs> There's Robert. Oh, it's Robert again. He's right. not far off. Discussing that a little bit more, Rocketman, for example, your latest book about, I think, I believe Apollo 8. I personally have never cared about space. I'm like, yeah, that's cool, but I'm, I'm pretty happy with Earth. <laughs> I know that there's Apollo. I know Tom Hanks was in one of the movies, but your book got me excited about space. I was like, this, this stuff is so cool up there and the level of details and the stress of the wives and, and all this stuff. Like, how did you adjust the story to make it more interesting or less? Well, I don't know if you made it less interesting, but how did that evolve over time to the, the way you, that you created it? Well, one of the things I wanted to avoid was not to make it too 
technical or too heavy in minutia like that because there's nothing turns me off faster than being bogged down in scientific details, especially ones that I sense that the writer feels that you must read because they went to the trouble of discovering it. Any overtly technical stuff I kind of cut out of the book. But the really thing that really grabbed me about Apollo 8 and you know this Apollo 8 spacecraft is in Chicago at the Museum of Science and Industry you know this world class museum we have here and i kind of stumbled across it and i was struck by the placard which said Apollo 8 made mankind's first journey to the moon in 1968 i sat there and i thought you know wait a minute that thing is saying something really staggering this little card if i was reading it right it was saying that Apollo 8 represented the first time human beings ever left home and the first time we ever arrived at a new world. And that seemed even bigger than space. That was Homeric to me. That was epic, our odyssey. And it occurred to me, even standing there, that no matter how advanced civilization gets, no matter how many millennia we survived or millions of years we survived, we will never again leave home for the first time and never again arrive at a new world for the first time. So it seemed even bigger and more important than just space and just astronauts to me. And from that moment, looking at that card and then beholding this spacecraft, which was scarred and battered from its journey, it's a beautiful thing to see. I just thought, I've got to tell this story. And when I went home, I discovered that only one person had ever written anything about Apollo 8, and it was 30 years old. And then I realized all three astronauts are living, including Jim Lovell, who lives just 15 minutes down the road from me. So it all seemed a real natural thing to come together. I actually want to go back a little bit in a second, but did you change the narrative from how you were looking at the story or how to make it an interesting story? I often toy with what order to tell things in. Sometimes I want to tell something later in the story, first in the book, but this one really made sense to tell in a kind of chronological way. The United States was engaged in a real epic battle with the Soviets to get to the moon first, send a human to the moon first. And this thing really occurred from about June of 1968 through the end of 1968. So it was a real, really compressed, condensed rush to the finish line. NASA did this entire mission, conceived it, trained for it, and executed it in four months rather than the 12 to 18 months that space missions typically took in the United States. So this incredibly intense training and push to the finish line provided its own momentum in the story. What I had to figure out to do was to also tell the story of the wives and the families, which was really dramatic. It's something I didn't realize when I first made my first phone calls to the astronauts, just how critical the story of the wives were, how courageous and heroic they were, just as important as the men were. Never realized it. But also to tell the story of 1968, because this whole first journey away from home is happening within the context of what you could argue was the very worst year in this country's history. 1968, you have the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. We're on our way to 16,000 dead in Vietnam. You have violence in the streets weekly, including in my hometown of Chicago at the Democratic National Convention. And the entire fabric of society seems torn here. Everybody seems angry and uh, ready to fight with everyone else. You know, there's a lot of echoes from 1968 to today, but even worse back then, the entire country is in terrible shape. And here, Against that backdrop, NASA is proposing to do something in an insane schedule, something that's never been done or tried before. And they're going to do it with all kinds of risks involved, risks that'll make your head spin 50 years later, risks they would never take again. And it's coming down to the wire against our mortal enemy. 
And so it just seemed like this is such a fantastic, dramatic story. I'm just going to lay it out as it happened. And that turned out to be the best kind of construction of them all, I think. Is there any particular story within the book or that you learned uh, researching Apollo 8 that stood out to you? Well, there were so many of them. The risks they took to get there, the, the bravery of these guys, just unthinkable. Just a couple of them. When Apollo 8 flew, it required the use of the Saturn V rocket. And to give you an idea of the power of the Saturn V rocket, 363 feet tall, 51 years later, it remains the most powerful machine ever built. Think about that in an age of technology when things are obsolete in a matter of months, 51 years later, human beings have still not built a more powerful machine than the Saturn V rocket. But when Apollo 8 flew, the Saturn V had only been flown twice, both times in unmanned tests, the second of which failed catastrophically. So you're talking about three guys with wives and children climbing aboard this 36-story tall rocket and going when there's only been two tests, the second of which was a disaster. They're also going to go without a lunar module, which I could explain more, but they're going to be going without a backup engine. And that's uh, something that no other Apollo flight after that is going to do. By going with an, without a backup engine, if anything happens with their single primary engine at the moon, if it fails to fire, if it fires too hard or too soft or misfires, they can crash into the lunar surface. They can fly in lunar orbit for 10 or 20,000 years before crashing into the moon, or they can be flung off into eternal solar orbit. And that's just the start of the many myriad dangers that they're going to embrace. But beyond that, discovering the story of the wives and the family and just how much these women sacrificed and what the dangers were and how they had to deal with it, all while presenting a happy, smiling face to the American public, often with hundreds of media on their front lawns, but especially the wives of Apollo 8, who had never seen any of this proved possible before. Remember, after Apollo 8, when these flights went, they had all seen that it was possible to fly human beings to the moon. When Apollo 8 went, nobody had known that any of that was possible. And so the pressure on these three particular women was just immense in a way I think that was unique. And so discovering their story was absolutely phenomenal as well. It's definitely as I was reading the book and, and hearing you talk about it now, we take for granted. I do. I'll speak for myself. I'm like, oh, yeah, space. We got there. Of course, we're going to get there. And in your book, it was pretty insightful. I was like, holy crap, like these astronauts, the training was short. I guess I didn't really realize how much risk there actually was for them to die and for this not to really work. There was huge risk. When Bill Anders, the youngest of the three astronauts, went home to tell his wife, Valerie, about this sudden change in assignment, she asked him, and she knew about space. She had taken astronomy courses in college, and she knew about the entire space program. So she knew that this was dangerous, and she asked him what he thought the odds were, and he thought it over, and he knew that she did not want to be BSed. Uh, he always spoke very frankly to her, and she always wanted that. And so he thought it over and he told her, I think there's a one-third chance of a successful mission, a one-third chance of an unsuccessful mission in which somehow we make it back home, and a one-third chance that we never come home at all. And Valerie breathed a sigh of relief. To her, those were good odds, given what was going on in NASA in 1968. So you can see what these guys were up against here. As you're doing your books, you know, you've had two books about water and, and one book about space. You've had other articles that you've put together. How does these stories change your life? Like I was wondering if you read these stories and you say, I'm going to take more risks now and I want to go to space now, or I want to become a deep sea diver. And, you know, cause I'm curious for the audience, for myself, if, you know, as you read your books or as you create this material, you know, how it changes you. I think the way it changes me is that it does suggest that taking risks is a good thing, not necessarily climbing on top of a 36 story tall unproven rocket, but the idea that many 
good lives are led by pushing yourself to things you thought might not be possible. You know, I used to be a lawyer before I became a writer, and I quit law. This is before I ever knew that I could make a living in writing or even knew that I could write a sentence. But I had a feeling that I was going to have the next 50 years of my life be profoundly unhappy if I stayed in big firm law. I was making a lot of money. I came from a fancy law school and things were set up for me, but I was miserable. I was unhappy every day of my life. And so I, I took this leap, not knowing what I could do for a living or how I could make a living, but it was the right thing to do. And somehow I recognized that in all the subjects I've wrote about in my four books so far, all of them, the thing they have in common was a refusal to lead an ordinary or easy life. Somehow all of them sensed that there was something harder out there and better out there, and they would be better off going for it rather than playing it safe. And so that seems to be a theme that runs through my work and also something I try to remind myself of every day. Have you done anything recently or in the past years since uh, you started writing more books about these adventurers? Well, I don't think I've taken the kind of leap that I took when I changed careers. But one thing I do almost daily is I don't take the next book idea that seems good but not great. And that can be very scary in my line of work because I write strictly nonfiction and I'm looking for great stories. And great stories, almost by their definition, are very rare. And so there come times when I'm frightened nightly. Uh, sometimes I wake up in cold sweats because I don't have a book idea. For example, right now, it's been a little over a year since I finished Rocket Men. And I've been looking for a great book idea. And I found some very good ones, but I've had to pass on them because I think having a great idea is so much more powerful than having a very good idea. And I'm willing to wake up at nights terrified sometimes that I'll never find another idea rather than settle for a more ordinary idea. And so I think that's probably the best reflection of that kind of philosophy, at least as I try to live it. How do you figure out a, the difference between good and great? What have you passed on? Like, why not Apollo 4? Or, you know, what are some ideas that have been and good and why are they not great to you? It spans so many different possibilities. There, there have been ideas where the story has been great, but the characters are not admirable or not likable. Or there's been tremendous stories that just don't have a satisfying ending, where if you were a fiction writer, you just flip a switch, change the ending, and you'd have a great story. So you have to really be very picky, I think. And you know, I talk to my other nonfiction writer friends about this all the time. How do you know what a great story is? And nobody has a really good definitive answer. It's like trying to say what makes a painting good or what makes a song good. You kind of know it as soon as you hear it, but you also know it when it's bad. And something that's just very good often will say to your brain, this would make a great magazine story, but to try to sell this over 350 pages or 400 pages, there's just not enough there. Or the characters aren't rich enough or the story isn't deep enough. And so you just have to kind of develop an instinct for what's not good. And you could be wrong, by the way. There's a lot of stories of people passing on ideas and then someone else will write it a year later and you say, oh, God damn it, I made a mistake. <laughs> the truth is that in my business, you know, I write in narrative nonfiction writing, you have to have a great story to start with. I don't care if you're, you know, William Shakespeare and Dickens and uh, Philip Roth all rolled into one. There's only so much that you're wordsmithing and your writing talent can do to save a book. In the same way that, you know, I love Robert De Niro as an actor, but I've seen Robert De Niro in some bad movies. Now they're better <laughs> than they would have been with the average guy, but there's nothing Robert De Niro can do to make that a good or great movie. You know, the underlying material has to be good. 
And so I think in my business, you have to be willing to be terrified, sometimes for a long time, until you find just the right materials to work with. What are some of the things you've passed on? Oh, I recently passed on a a sports story. I won't go into it too much, but it involved a sports championship that occurred out of the country. And it had every element of story that I love. It had redemption in it, had very fascinating characters. It had a lot of risk-taking. It had a real David and Goliath element to it. But in the end, I couldn't be convinced that enough people in the United States would care about it. And so for that one reason alone, it didn't become a next project. I also worked on a military story for a long time that I thought was fantastic. Every element was there also, but the characters I was writing about turned out not to be as admirable as I had hoped. And so I kind of let that one go too. And those are the kinds of examples that you have to go through. Sometimes you spend a lot of time on it before you realize this is just not going to work out. And then you feel like, well, I just worked for free. And that doesn't make sense. But you just have to convince yourself that finding the real right thing and letting anything less go is, is paramount. That's a great message. I think that's really hard. You know, and I think as you get older and you try a lot of things or see new things, uh, it helps you improve your taste buds. You talked about some of the elements of, of what creates a great book for you and, and in general, which is the David versus Goliath, risk-taking, redemption. And the last thing that you mentioned was broad appeal. And so I think this applies in, you know, a lot of different aspects of business and life, which is like, you know, are they, you know, do you have the formula that you're creating for a good product? Yeah. And I don't know that there's any scientific way to figure that out. I think if there was, we'd A, know about it already, and B, we'd know who did it. <laughs> but you know, even the best people, best business people have launched some stinkers and they'll do it sometimes later in their career. I think it's one of those things that you just don't know. You know, How many times has somebody written a song or recorded an album or made a painting or written a book that completely failed to move anybody. And then 50 years later, it's the best thing in the world. So you may actually have done something right, but not for the moment. And so I think it's a really tough thing. And it's really easy to get down on yourself or depressed or think, I blew it. I made a miscalculation. But even that's not the case all the time. I think you just have to use your best kind of sense of what the general public would like. And I think the easiest way to do that is to ask yourself what you would like. See, none of the books I wrote are things I wouldn't read. They're all books that I would love to read had someone else written them. And I think that's the only and the best gauge you can go by. Have you dealt with it all where some book does better? Because like, you know, even looking at Amazon, you know, uh, Shadow Divers is like you know, 4X reviews of, of other books or 2X reviews versus Rocket Man or Pirate Hunters. And it's been a bit longer, but I guess I was curious if you were like, oh, this should have done better or, or so forth. Yeah, Shadow Devers has been out longer, but it went immediately to number two on the New York Times bestseller list, and it stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for months, many months. And it was my first book, so I was just blown away by the success, and people really embraced it. And you know, to this day, it just sells and sells and sells. And then for my second book, I found this story, which I just thought was the most fascinating story ever, about a guy who'd been blind since he was just a baby. And at the age of 46, was given the chance to have a stem cell transplant surgery that would give him vision. It had only been performed 300 times, mostly in Japan. It was just cutting edge technology at the time. And he refused the surgery because his life was so rich and full without vision. And uh, you know, he was an amazing guy. He was the uh, CIA's first blind analyst. He was the co-inventor of the laser turntable, which was the precursor to the CD player. He, to this day, holds the world record in downhill speed skiing for a blind person, 65 miles an hour, totally blind. Think about that. And he was a success, really successful businessman and world traveler. So he was offered this chance to see, and he turned it down. 
And it made people furious. It's like, how dare you turn your back on the greatest gift that any of us has? And, and really, it seemed like that to me too. I remember having conversations in college with people where we debated. We actually had this debate. Would you rather die or lose your vision? You know, there was a serious discussion about that. Yet here he is and he refuses vision. And they said, how could you not want to see your wife and your two children? I mean, how could you not want to see the moon or an elephant? Think of that, but certainly your wife and children. And he said, listen, what happens if somebody knocked on your door and said, hey, I have an extra sense I'm going to offer you out of the blue, and it's going to help you love and appreciate your wife and children more than you do now. You tell them to get the hell out of there, especially if it carried the risk of cancer, as this surgery did because of the massive doses of anti-rejection medication required. So he said no. Now, little did he know that he would be only the 16th person known to history, known to history, to ever be completely blind for life and then gain vision. And in all 15 of those earlier cases, the results were disastrous psychologically for the person. But finally, after a year of saying no, his curiosity got the best of him because he was raised by a mother who demanded that he live fully, that he don't run away, he doesn't hide himself, that he breathe in the world completely and always be curious about everything. So his curiosity got the best of him. And the story of the book is what happened to him when he had the surgery. And it's a fascinating story. So I thought this is going to be a great follow-up to Shadow Divers. And my editor wasn't so sure about it. And so he suggested, why don't you write this for Esquire magazine, which is where I was a contributing editor at the time. And so I wrote the magazine version of the story and it won a national magazine award, which is the, you know, the highest prize in magazine writing. And Esquire got a ton of letters about the story. So that was all really good indication that I had come upon another really appealing story for a broad section of readers. And I wrote the book. And when it came out, it just did not resonate like Shadow Divers did. It was traumatizing to me to show up at bookstores where there was lines of four and 500 people waiting in the rain for me for Shadow Divers. And I would show up at the same bookstore and there were seven or eight people waiting for me to talk about this one. Now, it did briefly make the New York Times bestseller list, but it just didn't explode the way my first book did. And that was a real emotional crisis for me. I mean, I had a real reckoning with myself and my self-worth. And I remember telling my kids who were little at the time bedtime stories and wondering to myself, even as I spoke to them, am I really worthy of telling them stories? I thought I was a good storyteller, but am I? And yet to this day, I can't tell you how many people come up to me or send me emails saying, that book was the most important book I've ever read because of the relationship with the mother and the son and what she encouraged him to do and how she encouraged him to live. So it really meant something to some people, which is very rewarding, but it just didn't explode like Shadow Divers did or even like Rocket Men. And so I think you have to steel yourself to that emotionally and also remind yourself that no matter what kind of evidence you have, even a national magazine award for a story in Esquire, you just don't know. And you could figure things out and you could make checklists of qualities that stories should have or must have to be successful. And you can make all the ticks and all those boxes and you just don't know. And if you can come to terms with that, your emotional life as a writer, at least as a nonfiction writer, would be a lot easier. How did you get through it? I had to have a lot of <laughs> talks and drives with myself, reminding myself that some of these things are unpredictable. And also reminding myself of how many pieces of art, whether they're music or paintings or books, I love that a lot of people don't love. And does that reduce the value of the thing I love? If anything, I love it more for that reason. 
But you know, it took a lot of talking. It wasn't one or two times. It was months of reminding myself of that and just kind of stealing myself to the realities that art is very unpredictable and it's about people's taste. And you can't figure that out like you can a chemical equation. You know, my dad used to have these very precise chemical equations for all his paints and lubricants. And that's just not the business I'm in. It's interesting. The two things you said that were really insightful was one, you validated it. You know, I think in startups and business, a lot of people we work with, it's like, hey, if you have an idea, see if you can test it. If people, a few people will buy it before you invest all this money. And the second thing you said, which I really appreciated is around just make something you love yourself. And you did both those things. Amazing story. And you tested it and then it still didn't work. And so I think one, it's probably good to be humbled at times. I know I get that regularly and I like it, but also going back and saying there's going to be some subjective things and and still going forward with it and where you kept writing more books. Absolutely. Could not agree more. As you have these different topics, does it, is it at this point people bring them to you? Because I was, I was imagining during your day, you like, it's almost, I I wonder if it's overwhelming. You're like, you see like a candy wrap. You're like, oh, that must be a great nonfiction story. (laughs) Or, you know, like a toilet paper. Oh, this must be a wild toilet paper company. Does it come to you? Do people bring them to you or is it you're looking in certain places? Well, people bring them to me all the time, but I've they're very rarely good enough to sustain a book. People have really wonderful instincts about magazine stories. And, you know, for every good book idea, I'll have a hundred good magazine ideas. And I don't write for magazines anymore. It's been 10 years, I think, since I last wrote for Esquire. I'm strictly looking for book ideas, but they have to be really, really good. And most people who just have an idea haven't dedicated you know, the last 15 or 16 years of their life to thinking about what makes a good book idea. And so they're always well-intentioned, of course, but they are usually not really thick enough to sustain a full book. So the question then becomes, how do you find a good idea? And that is the big mystery of my profession. Nobody I know has a good answer for that. Sometimes we dream them up out of our heads. Sometimes we look in old newspapers for stories that may have been overlooked. One of the best ways, I think, to find all kinds of ideas is to do what Nassim Taleb said in one of my favorite books, The Black Swan, which is go to cocktail parties and just ask interesting people about their lives and about things they know about. But even then, I've been in this business. I mean, Shadow Divers came out 15 years ago, and I've only come up with like four or five good book ideas in that amount of time. So I don't think there's any real formula. It's just a lot of looking. And it could be frustrating because nobody's paying you while you look. Nobody's sending you checks saying, boy, I I can see how hard you're working, so please have this check. It's like, come to us when you have something, and then you're on your own. And as I said before, that could be a little unsettling. I've been trying to get paid for effort for a long time. Yes, if only. With that, yeah, my landlord doesn't take effort checks. Not anymore. No, mine doesn't either. How do you organize all this info? Because I was just imagining you're you're doing tape records yourself, you're meeting the astronauts, you're meeting their wives, you're meeting people at NASA and so forth. Like, how do you, I think that's something I'm like, how do I, you know, how would I do that? Or I think a lot of people would want to know how you, you organize it. Yeah, that's a very good question. And I'm still not sure I have a single you know, proof positive system. I think what I really do is I do all my interviews first, if I can. And that may take me, you know, up to a year just to conduct all the interviews. And then I start to think about how I'd like to lay the book out. And once I have a structure for the book, and it looks very much like a storyboard would that a director might construct for a film, I usually think about 20 chapters or 18, something like that, 20 chapters. And I think, what would best go in each chapter? And then I start to organize the material. You know, I look in all the transcripts and all my research. I have any book that I read, I have scanned and digitized so I can cut and paste things into different chapters. One thing that I do that I don't know that any of my other writer acquaintances, I don't think any of them does it, is I transcribe all my interviews myself. So most people I know send their 
their recordings off to transcription services, which have gotten really reasonable and accurate and, and affordable. But I listen to them back and I type out the thing slowly as the person I'm talking to is speaking. And the reason I do that is because when I'm conducting the actual interview itself, my mind is only half on the person's answer at best. The other half of my brain is thinking, what's my next question? Or I'm trying to adjust to something they said that I didn't expect, or they raised a new issue and I have to figure out a follow-up question to that. So I'm only half really connected with them. But when I get home and I can slow it down and stop it every minute, and type, you know, I'm not the greatest typist in the world, so I go slow. I can really hear them and hear what they're saying. That's one of my secret weapons because I really absorb what they're saying. And even the pauses between what they say and their uncertainties and things that I might have missed sitting across the table from them, I pick up on transcription. So the downside of it is it takes me a lot longer to get that done than sending it off. But the upside is just tremendous for really connecting with what they're saying and also for figuring out what you want to say the next time you interview them. How long does it take to put together one of these books? What's the range of time? It's been so consistent with me. It's taken me about two and a half years start to finish. And then it usually takes another six months or a little bit more for the publishing machine to get up and running and the marketing and the advertising to get ready. So it's usually about three years from idea to publication. It's so funny too, because we read these books in a day or two or a week. And you know, I, I think as, as the consumer, we forget how long greatness takes. I love hearing that reminder myself. Like I want things to actually take longer in the creation process. I love hearing that because I'm like, okay, good. If you're not having it right away, it's because amazing things do take time. You know, with, with these books, do you use, I am curious, this is not stuff normally I would normally ask, but do you use like Microsoft Word or do you have like a bunch of different tools you use? Yeah, I just use Microsoft Word. That's it. And my little transcription program for my interviews. And that's it. It's all in Word. And then I use Dropbox to back things up because, you know, every writer's nightmare is they have a book or half a book and it disappears. And that used to happen, by the way. So now, you know, with the cloud, I back up two separate places in the cloud. And that's basically what I do. Sometimes it goes fast and sometimes it goes really slow. I was listening to the audiobook version of Rocketman a few days ago because the reader, Ray Porter, is just one of the best in the business. And someone's telling me it was the best performance they'd heard in an audiobook in a long time. So I put on a random chapter and I hadn't listened to it since it first came out. And I thought, oh, that sentence was really good. He read it good and I wrote it good. And then my wife reminded me that that sentence took me a day and a half, that I was so frustrated and so disgusted with myself at my piss poor writing that I just wouldn't accept the sentence. And it was true. So some of these things are not very glamorous when they're occurring. You know, you're sitting in front of a big screen and pounding the desk and saying, man, I'm terrible at this. And then ultimately it comes out good. So that's part of why it takes a long time. You just, you know, you want to put out something really good because at best, at the very best, this happens to me once every three years, I'll get to put out a book. And so I really want it to be as, uh, you know, the finest example I could produce. I do hope you find your next idea as conveniently as possible. Oh, me too. I'm telling you, I look, I look every day. I actually have that thought. I thought, well, my career is probably over. I don't think I'll find another story as great as Apollo 8. How do you follow mankind's first journey away from home ever. What could you follow that with? But I have to keep trying and you know that they're out there. The trick is to just keep looking. It's just sweat. How come you don't turn into uh, to doing fiction then, exploring that realm? Well, a couple of reasons. One, I'm not so sure I know how to construct a fictional story. I'm, I'm just way more interested in things that actually happen. There's a power in a really good nonfiction book where you're turning the pages and you think to yourself, my God, this actually happened. And that experience is so transcendent for me in other people's books that I feel like I just want to stick to that. It's something that moves me in a way that fiction doesn't quite get there for me. 
And I don't think I know what I'm doing with fiction. I just have a feeling for telling true stories. And also, I think one thing I am good at is sitting across the table from someone and really, really getting to know them over the course of weeks and months to the point where we feel really comfortable with each other and I can get things from them that maybe others hadn't gotten. And that's another real rewarding part of the job for me. And that wouldn't come with fiction. What does the two and a half years break down as? Is it, you know, you're interviewing the people in the books for for two years and writing for six months? Or what's the, the breakout look like? Well, for let's say the first year, I'm doing a combination of interviewing the primary subjects and then the secondary subjects, friends and family and things like that. And at the same time, I'm reading everything I can get my hands on about the topic. So, you know, it might have taken me three months to just learn the Soviet space program from the 1960s. I had to understand that it was very important. That's why Apollo 8 went when it did and how it did. And it's why Apollo really went in general. So I had to feel like I understood that. Then I had to read about 1968. And then I had to read about Apollo 8 to understand it. So there's a lot of reading that goes on and a lot of interviewing that goes on in that first year. It's all learning. And then I'd say after the first year, that's when you're going to do follow-up. So now you may, might know what your book is going to look like. And now you realize I have a lot more questions. So then you'll revisit the subjects and the families if they're kind and generous enough, which all of mine have been to an indescribable degree. And then you read secondary books and you consult experts. That's another thing I'll do as part of the research process. I will engage world-class experts to make sure that what I'm writing is correct and that I understand it correctly. And so all of that really melds together. And it's only maybe after, I'd say, a year and a half that I start writing, where I feel like I'm ready to write. In that first year and a half, of course, comes the construction of the thing, which to me is the most challenging aspect, learning what fits where best. And you know what should I do in chapter two? And what's the advantage of doing it in chapter two rather than later in the book? How much should I bleed out in chapter one about what's coming? Those kinds of things could take months, and that's ongoing as well. That's really interesting to break that down. I have a good friend of mine that lives here in Austin named Billy. He found his purpose is to write a book. And so he's been working on it for about six months. And I feel like I'm giving him a lot of crap. I'm like, it's six months. Why is the book not out? And we check in every week and every week is like, I'm just researching. It's insightful to hear that for you, you know, you're spending a year and a half just on the research. I did ask Billy though. I said, well, Billy, if someone else put out the same topic of book, would you be, are you nervous? Are you pissed off? And he said, no, because the amount of research I'm putting into it and the angle I'm taking is, is unique. So when it was nice to hear that it does take a long time and the amount of research it takes, but do you ever get nervous? Like another Apollo 8 book might come out. Well, in fact, one did come out before mine. It's, you know, every writer's worry. And all you can say to yourself is, I'm writing the best one. And because I'm taking a lot more time than the other person took, the quality will out in the end. And in almost all cases, it does. Your friend's effort, Billy's effort, and his time will pay off for eternity after that book is published. And you just have to you know, remind yourself that nothing good comes from a book produced in a few months. If they had Surgeon General warnings on books that told how long they took to write, and you saw six months, you got to pass on that book no matter what. You know, it's like a cigarette warning. It's no thanks. People find the highest quality and almost always it's connected to a deep passion and deep time and uh, research spent. Yeah, you reminded me of my business partner, Chad, actually said that to me a week ago because one of the things we're working on is taking a long time. And he said, well, if it was quick, everyone else could be able to copy it or do it themselves. Absolutely right. It's a healthy reminder to hear that from you. I want to go back to your career uh, in a moment, but how much time as an author do you actually spend promoting and coming to do a podcast? And because and I think that's something that is missed a lot of times in business. And, and a lot of my audiences is small business owners. I think a lot of times they're like, well, I'll make a great dish or I make a great book, a great software, a great 
product. And then it should just sell. So I was thinking, I was like, how many times do you have to come on podcasts or go to book tours and, and so forth? Well, when Shadow Divers came out 15 years ago, it required zero. All I did was show up for my book talks where my publisher, Random House, told me to go. And that's all that was required. In fact, I don't think if you wanted to do more than that, you could have. These days, it's much, much different. And I work with professionals, including Ryan Holiday, who really taught me that you have to take a lot of the reins of the stuff yourself. You have to grow an email list. You have to send to that email list, keep it up, maintain an excellent website, get on social media, and just make people aware because no one's going to do it like you do it for yourself. And it's the way people are used to receiving information these days also. So I try to do all these things. But in the back of my mind, I'm, you know, I'm like my dad who said, I don't want to spend money on color labels because I want to put that money into the product. But that wasn't a realistic perception then, and it's not one now. You have to sell your own thing. So turns out, I love to go on podcasts, especially when they're wonderful ones like this, but it's necessary. And if you don't do it, it's hard to convince other people to do it for you. Yeah, because I think that's missed a lot of times from authors that I've met or worked with personally, is that they're like, I put the book, I'm done. But because you spend three years working on the book, and then you're like, oh, I'm so t I'm tired. And it's that last lap of making sure you're putting it out there for the world if you believe you've created something great and spending time on it. With your career, I wanted to just kind of tie into how did you not worry about making money? You know, I think that's something I was curious how you thought about it or processed it. And, you know, you're this lawyer and I have a lot of friends like I started out working at Intel. You know, I was a worth in a cubicle and, you know, you quit that to be, you know, I think a writer, not in baseball. You did something else. Yeah, I went to hang drapes just to support myself and see if I could eat while I was trying to be a writer. But the one big advantage I had was that I hated my job at law so much that anything, even starving, seemed better than that. And a lot of my friends from law school who are all rich now and unhappy on their jobs tell me the one big advantage you had over us, they say, is that you hated your job just a little bit more than we did. And it was that extra bit of hating the practice of law that got me out. It really had to suffer. I mean, I really did suffer. I was in an existential crisis. And I thought, my life is basically over if I don't get out of here. And so the option of starving, which looked certain, it's hard to make a living as a writer, especially if you've never written anything before. But I was so desperate to get out of law that nothing really mattered. I knew I'd have to give up my BMW. I knew I'd have to sell my stereo and my bike. And all of it seemed a privilege in order to get out of that job that I just could not force myself to care about. And I wasn't good at it either. And so that was my advantage, that I did not belong in the law. My brain didn't work that way, and my heart didn't work that way. I guess the first thought I was thinking is like, I wonder how many other people have amazing things in them, but they're wasting it at a place that they don't want to be. I was like, how many other people are like Robert Kirsten, where they can be writing or music or software or products, but they're scared? And you know, what can they do to have a little bit more hate in their heart or... <laughs> you know, to get them out of that cubicle or that thing that they don't want to do so they can go create something. Yeah. Without sounding too new age about it, I think everybody has it. It's just a matter of discovering it and then being brave enough to take that Kierkegaardian leap into the abyss. You know how they talk about hitting rock bottom as being a necessity in certain types of recovery? I think that's a secret weapon. If you're willing to hit rock bottom, I think you can go looking for that thing. And you know, it's not always that hard to go back if you do hit rock bottom. But I just, in thinking about, you know, I left, I left law more than 20 years ago now, and I just can't imagine what my life would have been like in that, coming home every day, dreading the next morning. I remember hearing the ticking clock on 60 Minutes, and that, was, that put me into a panic. But just the sound of that clock meant that work was right around the corner. 
And I thought, am I going to go through 50 years of these 60 minutes episodes where my stomach sinks every Sunday night? I couldn't do it. If I had to eat peanut butter and ramen noodles the rest of my life like I had in college and law school, that was better. When I talk to people now, they kind of agree with that. So I'm all for people taking a risk, especially if it's earlier in their life when they could afford it. I didn't have kids when I did that. I was capable of low rent living. Yeah. So have a low cost lifestyle would made it easier to do that. Yeah. Within three days of arriving at law school, I knew this was a doomed scenario for me. I, can, I knew just by the people in law school who were next to me, because the people who loved being there were the people I hated personally. So that's a bad sign right off the start. So I knew that this was going to happen sooner or later. And so I just kept reminding myself in law school, do not get the golden handcuffs on. Don't get a mortgage. You know, I got a used BMW instead of a, a new BMW. And I just try to keep my costs and my obligations low. And that was one of the smarter things I did in life because I was able to live poor for a while without hurting anyone else in the process. That's interesting. Do you ever wonder what your life would be like today if you were in law? Like maybe you'd be happy? I'm certain that I wouldn't be happier. I'm certain of that. And one of the reasons I know it is because my wife is a lawyer. And when I go with her to work and just see the, the brown binders, I get shakes and I can't listen to the legal talk. And you know she's in a really interesting area of law and she's great at it. And it suits her better than it suited me. But even being around that, I have to flee the building. So I know I wouldn't be happy. And worse than that, I would be starting to ask questions at this point about what have I done with my life and why did I do that? And what do I have now that made it worth it? that I wouldn't have had if I left and tried something else. And those kinds of questions, what would have happened if I didn't try, those are central to my books. That's the single question that the two divers ask in Shadow Divers. Who would I be if I didn't risk everything for this? That's an important question. I love that. Was your plan always to be an author of books or did you just know you wanted to be writing? No, it never occurred to me. Never occurred to me. I never took a class, nothing. But what happened was I came home so depressed from my job that at night I needed to do something to save myself. And so I started to write little stories about things that had happened to me when I was a kid, going to basketball games in Chicago, what certain playgrounds were like, anything I could remember. And I didn't purposely do that, but they were from a time where I was carefree, when I would push a friend on a swing with utter abandon so hard that I would fall down after I gave him the under push. I thought, you know, two things are occurring here. One, I'm writing about a happier time. My brain is going back to those points and I can't disappoint that kid. That kid who's pushing that hard on the swings doesn't belong locked up in a law office. But secondly, when I would write these stories, time seemed to go very fast. So I might write a story, you know, be it like a couple pages long. And I thought, wow, I pulled that off in 20 minutes and it had been three hours. And of course it worked, just the opposite was true. I would put in what I thought was eight hours and like an hour and 15 minutes had gone by. And so I thought, writing is fun. It's connecting with something. I know I don't know how to do it because I've never done it, but I think I can know how to tell a story decently. And I can't go back there to the law firm, no matter what they're paying me. And they were paying me a lot. And so I just quit. And I thought, I'll figure this out. And if worse comes to worse comes to worse and I'm actually starving, I suppose I can try to figure another way to make money in law. It didn't have to be at a big law firm, but I thought, I better give it a shot, certainly before I have kids and a mortgage. What are you telling your kids as they've gotten older about what they should do in their, in their careers and their life? I try not to tell them too much specific. I try to tell them to learn how to be good at something because it feels really good to be good at something. That's the other thing I discovered. It felt really bad because I was bad at law. I didn't just hate it. I was bad at it. And that felt bad, but it felt good to be good at something. So I try to tell them to concentrate on how it feels to be good at something and learn how to be good. and then 
whatever it is turns out that you're good at, go for it. I had a feeling, I'm just gonna tell you, I had a, I had a vision for a moment that maybe your next story is gonna have something to do with law. It just came to me. I don't know if that's gonna be true, but I'd be kind of neat. Wouldn't that be cool? I'd love it because I know that world. Yeah, there might be something there. I do wanna wrap up and respect the hour. Two last things. Who else do you love for nonfiction? You said you have a lot of friends or you, you have a lot of, who else are you reading when you're not writing? I really love a local author here named Jonathan Eig, who writes narrative nonfiction and biographies. And his latest is this brilliant biography of Muhammad Ali. I also love the British nonfiction writer, Ben McIntyre, who has not published a bad book since the first one, The Napoleon of Crime, which is one of my all-time favorites. I just love that book, The Napoleon of Crime. And then there's an essayist here in Chicago named Joseph Epstein, who is a fantastic writer of essays. And essays are a real disappearing art form. Very few people write them anymore, but he is the best of the best. And so that's who I've been reading lately and who I read constantly. I'm also a huge Philip Roth fan. And Philip Roth wrote a very short nonfiction book called Patrimony, which is one of the most beautiful books you'll ever read. And you could read it in a, in a few hours about his ailing and dying father. So that's another one that has moved me very deeply lately. You just gave me a summer reading list. So I appreciate that. Awesome. I was curious for you, uh, you know, coming back to one of the earlier things you talked about is you said your father was obese and your family has obesity. I was curious how you got out of it. I think I'm curious in general when someone lives in a small town and they leave or someone's family is a certain way, but they're different. I don't know where that comes from, but I was curious for you how, how that happened. Well, it happened on a specific day, actually, about 10 years ago. My wife had a health scare and it turned out to be nothing, but for a while it looked like it could be very, very serious, if not fatal. Again, it turned out to be nothing, but in that testing period, I realized that my kids might be soon growing up without a parent. Then she was completely fine. It was nothing to worry about. And I realized it was me that could be leaving the earth if I didn't straighten my act out because I was at least 100 pounds overweight. And I had a father who was much more overweight than that. I was heading toward diabetes and it was not looking good for me. And that deep emotional realization of how deeply it would hurt my family if I were to disappear really got me going. And the first thing I did was read a book uh, by Gary Taubes called Good Calories, Bad Calories, which I consider to be a masterpiece of scientific research. And it really, really affected me. And it happened at just the right time again when I had this real close eye-to-eye -eye look at what it might be for my kids to lose a parent. And that book changed everything to me. It really made a, a very deep scientific argument for the low-carb eating style. And I've been doing that ever since. And so I'm 100 pounds down. And that's how it happened. Man, wow. Have you read Mindless Eating? No, I haven't. Would you recommend it? Yes, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. That book was a game changer for me. I read it probably, I don't know, eight to 10 years ago. And I actually got to chat with them on the show and phenomenal just in terms of it, it doesn't change your diet. It just changed how you eat during the day. And it doesn't, oh, you got to fast or anything like that. It was just kind of like little tricks that you don't realize that you're eating more food or ways to do the opposite and eat less food, but your brain doesn't even know it. Oh, I can't wait. And it, it stuck with you? It stuck with me, but I didn't realize it's from that book. Like a stupid one that I've, I think about is that chips. So most people eat chips out of the bag. Right. And in the book, he said, just take the portion you want and put that on a plate and then only eat from the plate. <laughs> I don't think I've ever done that my whole life. Actually, I remember a lot from the book, like at our house, my girlfriend had a cookie out. Every day I'm looking at this cookie. It's a, it's a black and white. And I'm like, babe, I want that cookie. But in the book, one of the things that he, he talks about that I really love is that whatever you want to eat, just put it behind the cupboards so that you're not having to look at it and make a decision every day about something. Right. And so I actually ended up hiding the cookie in her bag 
<laughs> that I wouldn't have to like think about, do I want to eat this cookie or not? And it, he go, he's a, he's a scientist. And so he did a lot of research around these different types of food decisions and, and ways of eating like, you know, smaller plates or different lighting or different utensils. Awesome. I can't wait. All right. Well, Robert, I'm super excited to chat with you and I wish you the best in finding the next topic. Every one of your books though, is definitely some of my top, top favorite books, Pirate Hunter, Shadow Divers, Rocketman. And then I'm going to go check out Crashing Through. So everyone go check out all those. Definitely. That's the first thing you got to go do after this episode. And thank you, Robert Curson, for coming on. No, it's been such a pleasure. You're absolutely top of the game at this. I can't thank you enough for the time. And let's definitely stay in touch. Well, that's a wrap. I hoped you loved the episode. If you did, go check out Robert Curson at robertcurson.com. That's R-O-B-E-R-T-K-U-R-S-O-N. I have read every single one of his books, and I recommend every single one. Go check them out on Amazon. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's go on a road trip together. And before you go, let me know what you thought of the episode by sending me an email, podcast at okdork.com. I check every other email that you send. Also, remember to go check out the cool product, sumo.com. Hey, it's cool. It's free. It captures those emails, my friend. Capture them just like fireflies. Sumo.com, it's free. Use it on your website, store, Shopify, WordPress, every single site online. Grow your email list, grow your bank account. And a final special, special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com. As always, for making these podcasts sound so damn nice and clean on your eardrums. And thank you to Dean, David, and Sean on the Dork team. And a special shout out to my boy Garrett at Sumo for just being an amazing, great guy. He plays guitar. He's a good dude. And I'm very, very glad we acquired your WordPress plugin years ago. Uh, It's an amazing thing to be able to work with you. What's your favorite nonfiction book? Uh